Section 10 of Meller of the Silver Hand and Other Stories of Bright Ages. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Linda Marie Nielsen, Vancouver, B.C. Meller of the Silver Hand and Other Stories of the Bright Ages by David Byrne a minstrel's ministry one even when he was a young boy in saint cadult's delightful school at lincarven hyvarnian had been known as the little sage no small number of our british forefathers god gave the gift of song not merely the inferior capacity of playing and singing but that immeasurably higher endowment of creation and invention like his holy master, Cadot, and many others that period, Hyvarnian was a poet as well as a minstrel, a sage as well as a singer. And because his teachers and schoolmates willingly gave him the distinguishing title of Swordvek, the little bard, there can be no doubt that at quite an early age he began to show very remarkable powers of thought. Genuine lover of poetry and music was Cadot and his regard for this gifted pupil was marked. No doubt the abbot hoped that, like so many other well-endowed boys, Hyvarnian would one day submit his curly locks to the church's shears and be crowned with the tonsure of the monk. For the lad was humble and modest, pious and obedient, and seemed to be blessed with all the qualities that the saint required in those who offered themselves at his subjects indeed full of admiration for the young bard's wisdom and power of improvisation saint cadoc one day ventured to engage with him a sort of contest of song on the subject of the moral virtues it was an interesting and moving spectacle there in the big cloister school in the presence of all the monks and the boys harp in hand the saintly abbot confronted the little school lad and enumerating the eighteen leading virtues with which a true follower of jesus christ ought to be adorned bade hyvarnian complete the list for one so young it was no light task to try and add to the eloquent and exhausted speech of the saintly and learned abbot nevertheless as soon as his master had finished the little minstrel struck his own harp and began to sing ever the highest is he who is strongest when he is tried he is the virtuous man who is patient in bearing his cross he who is quick to act yet modest when he succeeds he who is humble of heart and persists in the way that is straight ready to labor and strive headless of all that affrights ever longing for learning generous to the untaught kind in thought and in speech a door of beautiful deeds a maker of peace in strife pure in body and mind to strangers courteous mild affable ever at board just in his daily speech just in his hourly deed strict to observe the law of the body of christ the church pitiful to the poor and to all who suffer wrong the boy ceased 
and bowing his head knelt at his master's feet nay said cadot with tears in his eyes be not fearful my child verily thine is the prize in this contest hyvarian i freely acknowledge thee the victor not so my master said the lad raising his eyes for a moment to the abbot's face i tried to surpass thee i an ignorant young boy thine holy father is the victory for is awarding me the prize thou art but making proof of the possession of true humility no person present ever forgot one detail of that striking scene it seemed to the monks that the saint was striving with saint a great shout rang through the hall hearty british and irish cheers both for their comrade and for the abbot even when the assembly broke up and the young bard's schoolfellows flocked about him to offer their congratulations, Hivernian would not accept the victory. "'Tis the abbot's own teaching,' he said modestly. "'What should I know of the virtues but for him? And is he not a living example of all that I put in my song? Nay, but I did but sing in my own feeble language the great truths that we all learnt sitting here at his feet who of us can ever forget the verses he has taken such pains to teach us let us repeat some of them as we walk added hyvarthian as the crowd left the cloister and sauntered into the open and on their way to the playing field now one and now another of the lads led by hyvarnian chanted in a lusty rebel the following aphorisms truth is the elder daughter of god without light nothing is good without light there is no piety without light there is no religion without light there is no faith the sight of god that is life two we may imagine with what reluctance the abbot parted from his little sage but the day came when Hyvarnian had to confess that he felt no call to the life of a monk. Anxious as he was to serve God faithfully, he could not bind himself to the vows of religion. And just because Cadot was a genuine saint, he had no narrow and rigid priest. Dearly as he would have liked to retain this gifted and God-living lad, the abbot thought, it the most natural thing in the world that his pupils should desire to see men and cities and make some trial of the talents god had bestowed upon him even when the holy man reflected upon the nature of these talents and remembered how easily they might be put to perilous uses he did not overlook the fact that god does not ask one man to play providence over another like all truly good and wise men he had a horror of trying to force a vocation and well understood that to one not called of god the life of the cloister might prove more dangerous than the life of a court moreover he knew harvernian young as the boy was he had acquired very solid virtues the abbey was no forcing house no hotbed of piety but a Christian school in which lads were taught to live holily, and so whatever the circumstances of their after life might 
be, they should prove themselves strong in the hour of trial. A hearty, manly, prayerful life was that of the sixth-century schoolboy, calculated to make the weak character strong and the strong character heroic. At this period, Saxon England offered no scope, no fitting career for a boy like Hyvarnian. Very slowly indeed was it being converted to the Catholic faith. Almost impersonally was it changing its barbarian habits. But now that Chibert had become king of the Franks, there was something akin to civilization in Gaul, and doubtless after many cogitation and many prayers, to Paris would Cadot send the young genius who was so dear to him. It is probable that at this time the boy was about fourteen, and that he spent at least four years at the court of Chilbert. His office was a high one and an honorable. No mere buffoon was this British lad whose voice could make rough men weep, and the sound of whose harp string could bring gladness to the sadness of hearts. No court gesture was the pupil of the abbot of Lycarvian, but a poet who sang the themes of both high and holy, and who among the mixed crowd of courtiers exercised a ministry of song calculated to make men ashamed of their vices, and to give them some understanding of the exceeding beauty of holiness. Great and to some extent perilous, for this young Briton was a change from the hard fare and stern discipline of the cloister school to the freedom and luxury of a royal palace. Happily the teaching of his holy master and the virtuous habits formed in his childhood stood him in good stead. St. Cadot's words had sunk deep down into the young minstrel's heart. Gaul, too, had its saints at this period, and the pure-hearted boy knew by happy experience how lovingly helpful holy men could be. But a day came when Hibernian felt a mighty longing to revisit the land of his birth. With a great desire he pined to see once again his beloved master and the beauty and peacefulness of Lincarvian. He had grown into a tall and handsome youth, strong and sturdy, and no longer could he sing in the dulcet treble of his boyhood. So with the king's permission, Hiverian left the court and traveled from Paris to Brittany, where he felt sure of getting a boat that would sooner or later land him on the shores of Britain. But there was some delay in getting the necessary craft, and the young man became the guest of Con Moore, Chilgren's vice-grant in Brittany, an honored guest, too, and one for whom fitting entertainment must be provided. So there were hunting parties and the killing of wild boar and deer, and it was during one of these hunts there befell the minstrel an adventure that changed the whole course of his career. Riding one day through the forest, he, who so greatly appreciated the magic of musical sounds, found himself intently listening to the singing of the most beautiful treble voice he had ever heard. Checking his horse, he remained motionless for a space, drinking in every note of this enchanting vocal music. It was the voice of a country maiden, and as the man listened his heart grew soft and tender. 
Pushing his way through the green boughs and the undergrowth, he soon found himself standing in a sunny glade by the maiden's side, and this was the refrain of her song. There by the water flowing, close to the streamlet's side, like the blue iris growing, yet one shall call me his bride. Truly, thought the young man, I am now of an age when the honest wooing of a bride might be blessed by God and by his church. Modestly and respectfully he greeted her. Tell me what flowers thou gatherest, he began to say, blushing more deeply than did the startled damsel herself. But how white and fair art thou, and how sweetly thou singest. These are herbs, young sir, she replied in a low voice. They are simples and not flowers. One drives away sadness, another banishes blindness. It is said there is one that overcomes death. Verily, thought the minstrel, this maiden, as wise as she is beautiful, and, if I mistake not, wise with the wisdom of heaven. Little queen, he said to her, Will you not give me of your simples? Nay, sir, she quickly replied, I will give them to no man, saving to him who shall be my spouse. But will you not permit me to be your spouse? asked Hyvarnian with great simplicity. And even as she hesitated and turned away the young man's host, missing him from the hunt, rode hastily into the glade with great simplicity, and even as she hesitated and turned away, Oh, Conmore, explained the youth, here is the only maiden I ever loved. Will you not help me to persuade her to be my own true wife? But Ravenion, the lady of simples and of the song, already loved the handsome and richly clad man who treated her with such reverence and courtesy. So Chabert's viceroy rode home and gave orders for a magnificent wedding banquet, and very soon Hivernian and Rivenon were made man and wife, and so happily were they that Cadot's pupil forgot his own country and his father's house and exchanged the Britain of his birth for the Brittany of his adoption. After three years of blissful living, a new joy came to them in the birth of a son. But the joy was tinged with sorrow, for alas, the boy was blind. Yet his father and mother loved him all the more tenderly for this affliction. And as he lay wailing in his little crib, each in turn would speak to him and soothe him with song. Night and day they sang to him, and always would he cease to weep and try to show how much he delighted in sweet sounds. They had called him Herve which signifies bitterness, but in the love and care of their child they both found a surpassing sweetness. 3. When Herve was two years old, his mother experienced the greatest sorrow of her life. Hyvarian, her devoted and beloved husband, Hyvarian, the strong and handsome minstrel, was seized with a fatal sickness and soon passed out of life. Her grief was very great, and her condition became exceedingly pitiful. She had no parents living and no well-to-do friends. Rejoicing in his young manhood and in his strength and always successful in earning 
by his music everything that he needed. Hyvarian had made no provision for the wife and child he loved so tenderly. The little blind boy now became his mother's only earthly consolation. He grew up with that extraordinary love of all things holy, which in some children is a special endowment of heaven. From both father and mother he inherited the gift of poetry and music, as well as great personal beauty of form and feature. Before he was seven years old, his one anxiety was to comfort and help his mother. When he reached that truly tender age, he at once began to try and earn his living. For fourteen hundred years have the Bretons sung the praises of little Herve. He is the hero of many of their prettiest and most pathetic ballads, still chanted around Breton farmhouse firesides on windy nights still recited beneath shady trees on summer days. In one of these songs they described the golden-haired, sightless little bard of seven, led about by a white dog, standing shivering in the wind and rain and snow, with no sabots on his bare feet, and scarce able to raise his voice in song for the trembling of his poor little limbs and the chattering of his teeth. They also sing a certain Song of Souls, composed by Irv at his father's grave on the evening of the Feast of All Saints. They tell to how on returning home, cold and weary, his feet slipped and he fell on the wet soil, and with a wounded and bleeding mouth sought the protecting arms of his mother. It was when Irv reached the age of fourteen that a great change took place in his daily life and in that of his mother. Loving her as he did, and earning whatever money he could for her support and for his own, he must have guessed that her heart was now wholly weaned from the things of this world, and that now and again she turned longing eyes toward a certain cloister home where many holy women were living under religious rule. Yet knowing how too dear he was to that widowed mother, he felt sure that unless he told her of his own yearnings to devote himself more directly to God's service, she would never dream of taking a step that would separate her from him all time. So one day he spoke to her very tenderly and lovingly, reminding her of the strange wandering life he had led since he was a little child of seven and telling her how much he longed to go to some solitary place where he could sing the praises of God and hear no music but that of the offices of the church. She listened to him in silence and with fast-falling tears, for though his own desires were so perfectly in union with her own, the thought of being separated from her afflicted darling was almost more than she could bear. Yet when she raised her eyes to look upon him, noticing the enthusiasm with which he spoke, seeing also how fair and handsome he was growing and how tall, she told herself that for his own sake it would be well that she should have some protector stronger than herself. For rapidly as the Catholic religion was spreading in Brittany, there were many pagans and barbarians in the neighborhood, heathen bards, too, who would certainly bear no good will towards a Christian minstrel who, 
in all his songs sang of his fair master christ and of the sweet mother who gave him birth long and earnestly did herve and his widowed mother talk of their prospects and of her brother godfried who long ago had retired in a solitary place in a neighboring forest where he lived the life of a hermit she indeed would be well content she said if her son placed herself in the care of so holy a man and so near a relation a person of some learning too was godfried and in spite of the fact that he had sought out a very retired place and nothing but a little cell to live in all the boys of the neighborhood regularly flocked to him for instruction it is indeed a remarkable fact that the bretons and the irish were so keen after letters that no matter how remote the dwelling of a learned man might be they were always quick to discover him and eager to profit from his teaching as we have already seen when saint cadot and saint gildas took up their abode on a desert island the boys of brittany soon found them out and though the lads had to cross the sea in their corkles they sought nothing of the trouble and the peril of these daily journeyings if only they might acquire some tincture of divine and human wisdom for herve must have started for his uncle's solitude long before the break of day for led by his faithful white dog he arrived just as the morning sun was pouring a pool of light over the open space in front of the hermit's cell the door was shut but the boy knocked and the dog barked rising from his morning prayer the solitary threw open the door but for the presence of the dog gorfred would have mistaken his nephew for one of god's ministering spirits standing there in full light of the morning sun his beautiful features surrounded by a halo of golden hair and wearing that calm rapt expression so often seen on the faces of the blind herve looked more like a radiant angel than a minstrel boy angel or mortal i bless thee exclaimed the hermit a thousand times welcome art thou to my poor cell and now for some happy peaceful years the poor lad's wanderings were over already his mother was clothed with the habit of religion and right gladly did he offer his entire being to the good god she had taught him to love and to serve day by day he joined all the prayers and offices of his guardian day by day he sat beside the sturdy breton lads who crowded to the hermitage and shared their every lesson very soon and in spite of blindness herve surpassed every pupil in learning from his beloved mother he had already learned much and as we know he had those gifts of creation and improvisation for which his minstrel father the wallum pupil of saint cadot had been distinguished marvelous grew the lad's memory and though his eyes had never looked upon the written letter his mind became stored with every kind of knowledge day by day the little hermitage rang with the music of harp and voice with reverent admiration did gorford's pupils listen to the blind boy's impassioned minstrelsy almost with awe 
would they make a circle about him under the trees of the woodland and wait with rapt attention for the inspired music that so quickly rose to his lips to have the privilege of leading him to carry his harp or to offer him any kind of service these young bretons were ready to fight one another they brought him their ripest fruits and their sweetest smelling flowers the pick of the autumn berries and the choicest of hazelnuts and filberts were poured into herve's lap when winter came they brought him the whitest and warmest lambskin that they could procure tunic and cloak of the fairest and thickest content themselves with suits of goat skin and bands of undressed leather wrapped about their sturdy legs they besought their mothers to make for herve long stockings of leather thick supple and lined with soft white lamb's wool utterly indifferent to the shape or fit of the wooden shoes they made for themselves they vied with one another in turning out for herve sabots of superior cut of the lightest wood the forest afforded and carved as to their insteps with quaint designs thus did they pay their school fees to the hermit for he would receive no money from them and for himself nothing but the plainest food and the coarsest garments but he was glad that the poor afflicted yet thrice blessed lad who had come to him should be warmed and filled and in every way well nourished for herb's earlier life had been a period of great privation and the wonder was that so delicate a child should have survived those long years of penury and exposure the time from seven to fourteen when the child sought so hard and not always successfully to earn enough bread for his mother and for himself five the happy years of pupilage rolled on and herve reached his twenty-first birthday the youth should have a strong desire to visit his mother seemed to the hermit uncle the most natural thing in the world in fact gorford himself set out with his nephew to find the convent where his sister had taken the veil it proved to be a sad yet happy and fortunate visit herve was only just in time to receive his mother's blessing and to add to the exceeding blissfulness of her last moments and now another great change was to come about in the life of the blind minstrel his uncle was no longer young and for some time past had longed to lead a more retired and recollected life though my son you were deprived of bodily sight said gorfred to his nephew as they journeyed home your mind is unusually enlightened and your soul is flooded with the light that comes clown from the father of lights why should you not take up the work that after so many years of labor i must now lay down you suppress me both in learning and in holiness the lads love you and in reverence you and your influence upon them for good is enormous they will look after your every want all that you need they will most willingly bring to you if it be cox will you and yours my uncle said irv simply i am well content though it grieves me to the heart to lose you who for seven long years have been my father and my master 
so after a long and affectionate leave-taking the hermit passed away and sought a deeper solitude in which he hoped to prepare himself for that marvellous unending life of eternity upon which all his hopes were fixed generously and resolutely in spite of the double loss that wounded a specially sensitive heart herve set himself to the task of teaching well equipped he certainly was and in possession of all the gifts that a christian schoolmaster requires boys of every age and condition crowded to the hermitage school leaving it every evening as an old breton ballad puts it as noisily as a swarm of bees emerging from a hollow tree right glad was the master when the days of sunshine came and he could lead his troop of scholars into the open there in the midst of them would he sit his sightless but perfectly formed eyes raised to the sky and give them the benefit of all the learning with which his mind was filled lesson succeeded lesson music following arithmetic the holy scriptures came after virgil religious maxims in verse many of them resembling those aphorisms the great saint cadot had taught Irv's father were chanted to the strains of the harp better instruct a child than collect riches the idle boy is laying up misery for his old age who will not obey the rudder will have to obey the reef such were the maxims that he taught but above all he was anxious to give these rough lads a rule of christian life and for this end he composed a special poem which they learnt by heart and sang to a pleasing melody in this song they are instructed to offer their hearts and lives to god the very moment they awake from sleep make the sign of the cross and say my god i give thee my heart my body and my soul make me grow up a good man or let me die in my youth the same poem teaches them through the sights and sounds of nature they may raise their minds to higher things when you see a crow fly think of the black and evil devil who is ever ready to destroy you when you see a wood pigeon circling in the air think of your own guardian angel gentle and white and sweet when you behold the sun in the heavens think of the god who sees all things who like the sun gives warmth and light to the whole world and makes the wild roses grow upon the blue mountains and the perfumed violets in the green forests ever before sleep commend yourself to god that a white angel may come from heaven and watch over you through all the hours of darkness on to the golden dawn herve's great anxiety was to help his young scholars to pray regularly and well without some training in fixed habits of prayer and recollection he knew that religious teaching was of little worth and that without constant correspondence with heaven no theological virtue could lastingly flourish so he taught his boys how to exercise faith and hope and love and sorrow for sin and to look upon direct communication with the good god as one of life's greatest privileges it is any wonder that in the province of brittany the catholic faith took deep and lasting root
Six. As time went on, Er's pupils grew into men, and many of them became holy priests and monks. What he had taught them when they were boys, they were now ready and able to teach others. Indeed, as the years rolled by, he began to see that he was no longer necessary to the existence of the Hermitage School, and that it might be well if he left it in the hands of the quondam pupil and opened a place of learning in some more neglected district. When a little girl suddenly appeared on the scene and claimed his protection as the daughter of his mother's sister, Herve bade a sorrowful adieu to his weeping scholars and began to travel eastward. Herve saw the hand of Providence in the arrival of the homeless little Christina. When his faithful white dog died, he had not provided himself with another animal friend. And indeed, there was no need to do this when so many boys struggled for the privilege of leading him from place to place. Now that he was leaving the hermitage forever, this bright and intelligent little girl would act as his guide and assistant. To build a small religious house was his first purpose, a little monastery in which he would teach the young, and in whose neighborhood he could find a suitable lodging for his niece. Moreover, like the Saxon Aldhelm, he was a great believer in the ministry of song, and knew that he could teach Catholic doctrine very effectively by going about among the people harp in hand and with Christian ballads upon his lips. He could not well be a preacher, for he had not even minor orders. A teacher, and a highly successful one, he had already shown himself to be. Little as Herve wished to find himself at the head of a religious community, he could not refuse the help of those who wished to join him in his good work. And when, in addition to the house and chapel that they soon managed to build, they set to work to construct a little college of wattled broom for Christina. The good minstrel was glad at heart. Under a clump of willows beside a pool and beneath the shadow of the church stood the little maiden's beehive home, and there she lived in great content, having sole charge of the altar linen and all the decorations of the little house of God. Even she is commemorated in the ancient Breton ballads, one of which speaks of her flitting in and out of her little hive of a home, singing and humming like a busy bee, picking the choicest flowers she could find and arranging them for the adornment of the altar. So sweet and sacred were the hymns she sang that while working within the church she did not refrain from chanting, and often when she heard her voice, Herve would make his way into the porch in order to listen and to bless God for the maiden's piety and innocence. After some years so great became Herve's fame for wisdom and for sanctity that when a council of Breton bishops met at Runbrea to condemn and to excommunicate an officer who was treating the poor with great harshness and injustice, our hermit minstrel was not only invited to be present, but was asked to pronounce the sentence. The scene was a striking one. Barefoot and clad in goatskin, the hermit stood in the center of seven bishops and many abbots, each holding a lighted torch. 
the wrongs done by the oppressor were many and great and all the prelates were agreed that the church's ban should be put upon him so mounting a rock the blind minstrel solemnly recited the sentence and the seven bishops responded with a triple amen every torch was instantly extinguished and the council broke up in silence for many happy years irv continued to teach and to sing both at home and abroad continuing to share his hermitage monastery with a number of devoted brethren and still the holy maiden christina continued to live in the little hive-like hut that stood so close to the door of the church but as the years passed by and irv began to grow old and feeble she could no longer lead him abroad nor might she visit him in the hermitage yet on sunny days he would come to the entrance of the church to give the maiden his blessing and to encourage her in the solitary and holy life she had so willingly adopted one day the hermit minstrel dragged himself thither for the last time christina he began feebly make up a little bed for me before the altar of god make it on the hard earth at the feet of jesus crucified give me a stone for boister and strew the couch with ashes for the time of my passing is nigh with much weeping the maiden obeyed him then she knelt beside him imploring him as a last favor to beg of god that she might follow him as the boat follows the ship my child god is the master was his reply it is he who sows the grain and reaps it when it is ripe for three days he lay before the altar and on the third surrounded by bishop and abbots and priests his holy soul passed to its rest and at the same moment christina bowed herself upon the feet of her uncle and died the boat had followed the ship into the heaven of eternity end of section 10 recording by linda marie nielsen vancouver bc